Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to a, another episode of Podcasts on Fifth Ave. I'm Taylor, you're Danny. Uh, we're back after a week off. I went home to Baltimore, uh, so it's my fault. Visited family. Saw Taylor Swift in Philly. Uh, and when I was there, I mentioned this to you when I was in Baltimore. My parents did send me back with a gift for you. Ever yeah, I, I still haven't heard anything about this. Yeah, well, okay, well, if you would have come to the bar with your friends you would have gotten it in person but you had to be a big wet blanket but it's oh, four oh. pounds of peanut m ms <laughs> and it says for danny we're sorry because <laughs> we have this idea that i bully you and you keep getting ratioed on twitter so it, it's it's not an idea you do bully me <laughs> don't don't try and change the narrative here so whenever i see you next <laughs> you'll get your peanut m ms excellent yeah. So uh, we do it. We do have a full episode today. We actually are going to have a guest in the third segment. Wheeling Nailers head coach Derek Army, fresh off a three-year contract extension. So stay tuned for that. But we actually have a little bit of news to get to first. Um, Penguins GM search continues, and since we've last recorded, we do have some clarity on who the candidates are, who the c- candidates aren't. We know Kyle Dubis. Totally out. Removed himself from the conversation. For him, it's either back to Toronto or bus. Because, you know, he, he's unsigned. He said if he's not going back to Toronto, he's not going anywhere. Um, but if you look at the, you know, the various reports that are out there of, of the candidates who have been linked to the Penguins, um, some of them we know that they're in the second stage of in- interviews. We're not sure about some of them. Um, there are about 13 names. Some of them we kind of expected. We've talked about on uh, past episodes. Uh, we can just go down the list. Uh, one that's kind of popped up recently, John Jaika, former Coyotes GM. Uh, this one's a little bit of a, I guess you'd say surprise because he hasn't worked anywhere since he bailed on the Coyotes prior to the 2020 playoffs. Um, he does have that kind of like analytics mindset, background, forward thinking like we know Fenway wants, but I, I don't, I'm not crazy about, about, about this one. I mean, he was only GM of the Coyotes for four years. Uh, and they remained pretty average that entire time. They didn't really get better. They made the playoffs in his last year, but he had quit by then, and it was only because of the expanded playoff format. Thoughts on yeah, that? You, you, you look at some of the, the individual moves he made as their general manager, like some of the trades he made, and they're like in hindsight, they look pretty okay. But he also, um, like the, the Coyotes got hit with some penalties from the NHL, and Chaika actually got suspended for a year 
from the NHL for like doing all kinds of like weird testing on prospects, like pre-draft and everything. And I'm, I'm not yeah. saying that's necessarily an indictment as uh, of him as a general manager, but that kind of like, I don't know, kind of makes you throw some caution there, I guess. Um, Cause like, what do you need like a brain scan for of a prospect to kind of figure out what kind of NHL player they could develop into. Um, with that being said, I, I don't think he'd necessarily be the worst candidate. Some of the names on this list, I would take him in a heartbeat over them, but uh, definitely would not be at the, the top of my list. No, and someone who does have, you know, more of an analytics background, that forward thinking, who we know is on this list is Eric Tolsky, assistant GM for Carolina. We've talked about him before. I'd, 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 he'd, he'd be at the top of my list at this point. We know he is in the second stage of interviews. He came pretty close to get the Blackhawks job last year, but then ended up losing out to just an internal internal hire in, in Davidson. I mean, I, I think you're on the same page. You're like Tolsky, top of your list, right? Yeah, Tolsky's at the top of mine. And even since we talked about him last yeah. time, like uh, <laughs> even though there's like a lot of information about him out there, it's kind of hard to like actually find stuff like from him that's recent so i was like doing a little bit of searching and i went on youtube and found a presentation he did at some analytics conference and he was going through like certain decision making processes and, and all kinds of stuff but one of the things that really stood out to me is during his presentation and, and he was with the hurricanes at this time um like the foundation of the presentation that he made was like breaking down a specific football play and like how do you assign blame and who gets the credit here and what's going on. And he basically got to the conclusion. It's like, well, from the outside, you can't really do that with all, without all the, the necessary information. So I really liked the way that he was thinking about that, but I also thought it showed his versatility that, Hey, he's, he's proving his point here on a larger basis with something that's not necessarily up his alley. Yeah. He, he has a very interesting background. Like doesn't he have like a PhD in, like biomedical engine, he has he has like a science background, and he worked in yeah. like you know tech and that kind of stuff. But um, he just got into like hockey analytics on the side, and like was you know like writing that kind of stuff. And then I mean he's been with the Hurricanes for eight years, so it's not like he just he doesn't have um, experience. So yeah, he's, yeah, he's a top one. There's been some like weird comments I've seen about like he's. There, there are some people who view him as like purely purely as like a spreadsheet warrior and like some like numbers geek. And I'm like, well, that may be true. But like, as you just said, he's been with the Hurricanes forever. Like he's he's a hockey guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another name, Matthew Darsh. He is in the second stage of interviews. He had a long career. But he, you know, he played in the NHL from 2012, more of a minor league guy. He only played 250 games in the NHL. Um this is his first year as assistant GM with the Lightning. Uh, he had been Tampa's director of hockey operations since 2018, so he, he was around for the back-to-back cups. Um, and as director of hockey operations, he was involved in, like, analytics, player development, contract negotiations. Um, he's another name who was interviewed with a lot of recent GM openings, uh, Chicago, Montreal, Vancouver. Um, he was also on, like, the NHL PA's negotiating committee during the last lockout. So uh, he's, he's, again, he's in, in the second stage of interviews too. That championship experience makes uh, him interesting. He, he hasn't been in a system gym for a long time. So I'm not sure if that's a knock on him. What do you think on Dyer? 
Yeah, he, he seems to be another one of those guys that's been trending toward like a GM position or like a president of hockey ops position. Um, I don't I don't really have a whole lot to add uh, from what you said, but I think he's one of the like few candidates that maybe haven't gotten to that level yet, but have kind of been tracking toward it. So um, I again, I, I think they could do a lot worse than that. Yeah. Uh, Dan McKinnon is another name in the second stage of, of interviews. I don't think we, we, had, we hadn't talked about him before. Uh, he's worked, he worked for the Penguins before, uh, he was in the Penguins front office from 2006 to 16, uh, first as a scout, then the director of professional scouting. And then his last seven years, he was the director of player personnel. Um, the last seven years, he's been in the devil's organization, director of player personnel to start. Um, he was promoted to assistant GM and senior VP of hockey ops in 2019. Um, and then the last two years, he's also managed the Utica Comments, the Devils AHL affiliate. Um, I mean, maybe that experience with the Penguins gives him an edge. And but I mean, just his involvement in the Devils, like the the rise they've taken the past couple of years, that's impressive. Yeah, but he is one of several Devils front office people that they've spoken to, and also yeah. one of several former <laughs> Penguins executives as well. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of retreads, but yeah, he he is one of three members of the Devils front office. But now. They're going to hire a president of hockey ops, a GM. You figure they're going to want an assistant GM too. They could, if like McKinnon, if he's the GM, maybe one of these other people that they're talking to at the Devils that he works with could come in and as assistant GMs. Maybe that's a good thing that they're talking to multiple people from the Devils. Possibly, but then like, is anybody going to want to make a lateral move from an up and coming team like the Devils to go work for the Penguins? I, I don't know. Well, so we can get into the the two Devils candidate, the people they're talking to now. One of them would be a, a lateral move if they would be moving to assistant GM. Um, Kate Madigan, she definitely was in the first round of interviews. It's not clear if she's in the second stage. Um, she she is a, assistant GM of the Devils. Um, she's been with the, it's her first season there, but she. She's been with the Devils since 2017. Uh, she was a player information and video assistant before being promoted to director of pro scouting in 2019. Um, and she was director of hockey ops for two seasons before being promoted to uh, assistant GM prior to this past season. So for her, you know, she, if for her, I don't think she'd make a lateral move to assistant GM. She was probably interviewing for the head GM job. But the other um, Devils for, uh, hockey ops connection is Megan Duggan. Megan Duggan, um, she's one that does seem maybe more suited to the assistant GM position because she's not um, she's not an AGM with, with the Devils. Uh, she's only been with the Devils for two years as the team's manager of player development. Uh, and she does work directly under McKinnon. So she reports to McKinnon. So that might be something that makes sense. Megan Duggan, for people who don't know, she's one of the greatest women's players of all time, former uh, captain of Team USA, seven-time world championship uh, gold medalist. She has a little bit of a Penguins tie. Um, her wife, Jillian Apps, is the daughter of Syl Apps Jr., who obviously played for the Penguins in the 70s. So that would be cool. But um, Madigan, I don't think, would, would make a lateral move. But McKinnon, if he's the GM, Duggan, assistant GM, does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Honestly, I'd just bring that whole front office over at this point. I, I, I've been a fan of what they've been doing over in New Jersey the past several years, and that, that goes beyond landing a couple of top picks in the draft. Yeah. Uh, Jason Carmanos, 
Speaking of retreads, uh, that would be another one for the Penguins. Uh, he was with the Penguins from 2014 until he was fired in 2020. They start out as VP of Hawk Ops for three seasons, um, and then three seasons and part of another as assistant GM. Uh, after the Penguins, he was with the Sabres as an associate GM um, for three years, and so that's where he, he is now. And he's also the um, GM of the Sabres AHL team, the Rochester Americans. Uh, before the Penguins, he was with the Hurricanes for a long time, from 1998 to 2013. Um, assistant GM there, executive vice president, couple roles. Um, so, I mean, he was obviously around with the Penguins for the back-to-back cups and part of that Sabres rebuild that has them, you know, on the cusp of returning to the playoffs. So, I mean, he has an impressive resume. I don't know if you'd want someone that was with the Penguins that recently as, like, it would be a retread. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't hate bringing him in either as president of hockey ops or, or as a general manager. The one thing um, I think he deserves credit for is wherever he's been, he's done a really good job of. And like I've I've heard that he was responsible for building out the analytics departments both with the Penguins and now with the Sabers. And and you look like during his time. Um, there, there was Sam Ventura and then he ended up nabbing him over in Buffalo as well. And, and Sam Ventura is probably another guy that we're going to get to here in a second. So maybe we can just lead right into him. Yeah. Yeah. We can just get right into Venture. He was at least in the first round of interviews. Uh, we're not sure if he's in the second one. He would obviously be another returnee to the Penguins. Uh, he got a start in hockey opposite the Penguins in 2015. First, just as a consultant for two seasons uh, before being promoted to the director of analytics. In 2020, he was promoted to director of hockey ops for the Penguins, and he was only in that role for one year before he was poached by the Sabres. Uh, with the Sabres, he's the VP of hockey strategy and research, and so this past season was his second year. Another forward-thinking guy. That's really the only you know quality we got from Fenway is what they were looking for in a GM, forward-thinking, which is, I, we're all interpreting as like they utilize analytics um, in their decisions, but yeah, he, he fits that bill. Yeah, I I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, they did speak. I I have to wonder though if if Ventura is is ready for that kind of role yet. Mm-hmm. Not he might not be another that, good, like, like assistant GM. Yeah, and, and I'm not even saying that like that he wouldn't necessarily be a GM, be a good GM. I'm just saying like individually as a person, I'm not sure that he's entirely ready for that role himself. But uh, it's tough to say. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, couple people who have been GMs in the league before. Uh, Mark Bergevin, he was at least in the first stage of interviews, not clear if he's made it to the second one. He was the Canadians GM and uh, executive VP of Hockey Ops from 2012 until he was fired in 2021. Um, they missed the playoff. The Canadians missed the playoffs three of those seasons under Bergevin, um, 2016, 18, and 19. He finished up. He finishes runner-up for the GM of the year twice for in 2014 and 2021. Um, so 2021 is a laughable, laughable nomination for him. Well, yeah. So I, you know, it, so after he got, and again after he got fired by Montreal, he um, wasn't out of a job long. He's been a senior advisor for the Kings for the last season and a half. Obviously, he has a lot of experience. I don't know if it's like great uh, experience. Like how much of his success with the Canadians was just because he inherited like Carey Price. Um, looking at that, that, that run to the final, um, they're like Cinderella run in that, in, in the bubble. Like it, 
how much of that was just because of Carey Price? Well, yeah, I mean, or just ignoring the fact that that was the COVID year. I mean, yeah. <laughs> on here, but uh, with that being said, I they got they got to stay away from Bergevin. I yeah. wouldn't hire him in any capacity based off his track record as GM. I have I have heard from somebody close to the team that. Um, they, they have had some relatively serious discussions with him, though there's kind of like an underlying sense that he might be viewed as a better fit for president of hockey operations. And there's also a sense that they might be kicking the tires on him maybe a little more seriously just because he is a close friend of Mario Lemieux and the idea is that, oh, if Bergevin's there, you know, Lemieux's going to be back in the picture and around way more, um, but again, I I wouldn't be making my front office hirings based off whether or not Mario Lemieux is going to be back in the picture at this point. Mark Bergevin, uh, yeah, he obviously he played for the Penguins during those last uh, couple of years leading up to the the o four o five lockout. So the worst possible time for him to, to be with the Penguins. A, a couple of years ago, I did um, like an oral history of that X Generation team, um, the o three o four team. Bergman started out that year. I believe that's he was traded um, late in that season. But uh, I was just getting stories from a bunch of guys who played on that team. I didn't talk to Bergman, but everyone, so many players brought up that he was like the prankster on that team. Something he would do is he would take the rookies' um, like clothes and you know, like during practice, and hang them up in Mario's change stall. <laughs> Because the rookies would be so terrified to go into Mario's change stall to get their clothes back out. Um, so yeah, that's something I heard from a, a bunch of guys about Bergevin on that team. I, Bergevin, I mean, yeah, you look at his past couple of years when he was in Montreal, it, yeah, he just had a couple of like pretty dumb decisions. Like the Carl Alsner contract is a big one. I, I, was, just, I was just about to bring it up. And then like he that, ends up in the minors immediately. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a five-year contract worth just over $23 million total. Um, he played one season in Montreal, but yeah, then buried in the, in the minors until he was bought out, and which is just insane. Um, and then you look at, like, I believe it was his last draft when he drafted Logan Mayu, who he was the one that... Um, I don't know if it, was, I don't, it wasn't a criminal case in Sweden, but there was a sexual misconduct issue. Um, he was supposed to be, you know, a first round pick coming into that draft, um, pretty high up in the first round. But then he asked to not be drafted that year because um, he, I th- he knew that there, Mayu knew that he would get a lot of flack criticism for what happened in Sweden, um, warranted, um, and I, he just sounded like he just wanted a year off to kind of work on himself. I mean, he was suspended in the, cause he came back to the OHL. He couldn't play in the OHL until he was cleared, but then Bergevin drafted him anyway in the first round. And that just to me feels like such a bad, um, uh, indictment of his judgment. I would, well, I, I completely agree with you, but here's my other thing, right? So, we've seen teams are willing to kind of stick their necks out for guys like that. If they're really good players. Right. Well, the thing is Mayu, right now he's, he's not tracking toward being an NHL or whatsoever. Right. Yeah. And, and I, several people in the, in the scouting field, whose opinion I really, really respect, you know, I, they'll, they'll tweet about him, especially because a few of them are based out of Montreal but I, I'll see them tweeting every once in a while, tweeting out these clips that are of him down in the OHL where he's just 
doing things that you're like, this guy got drafted and with the baggage that he carries and, and, and the character concerns that this guy has that the, the Bergevin went out of his way to take him. Yeah. I I'd pass on Bergevin. Another, uh, guy of GM experience, Peter Chiarelli. Um, so he was with the Bruins for a long time and one, you know, 06 to 15 won the cup in, in 2011 with the Bruins. Um, like that, that's nice to have that experience. And he was successful under the Bruins, but it's his tenure in Edmonton that like, I feel like should disqualify him because it was so bad. Um, he came in, he had a rookie Connor McDavid could not build a team around McDavid. They missed the playoffs. Three of those. He was only in Edmonton for four years, missed the playoffs in three of them. I, I just have a couple of his like awful moves in those four years in Edmonton, trading Taylor Hall to the Devils for Adam Larson. Right one before Taylor Hall won an MVP, yeah. mind you. One, one for one. Uh, he gave Lucic a seven-year, $42 million contract, um, which feels crazy for Lucic. And then trading Justin Schultz to the Penguins for a third-round pick. Uh, and it, to have Conor McDavid and only be able to make the playoff, playoffs in one of your four years, it, I feel like forget he was in Boston so long ago. You look at his most recent track record, and it's just not, um, not good. He's with uh, he's with the Blues now. He's been in with the Blues the last four years, two years as a senior advisor, and then the last year as VP of Hockey Ops. So not like a, a GM, but I, I just look at his time in Edmonton and, and no. Yeah, I genuinely don't know because like this isn't the first GM opening where it's like oh Shirelli's like in the mix or this team's talked to Shirelli. I genuinely do not know how this guy continues to get <laughs> interviews. Like I, I, I no hyperbole whatsoever. I get that there's stuff that goes on beyond behind the scenes that we don't know about these people and these candidates, but how in the heck is this guy still getting interviews? I, I don't have an answer. And, and, and to, to your point about McDavid and, and Dreisaitl as well, he had them while they were on their entry-level contracts. Right. Yeah, so it wasn't even like their, their massive cap hits were handicapping. Right. He had, I mean, yeah, to give away Schultz for a throw-in pick to the Penguins, uh, insane. Anyway, uh, we have three more to, to get through. One is a very interesting one, Cam Lawrence. Um when I saw this name going on, I mean, I messaged you on because I'd been off for a couple of days. I was like, "Is this the Cam Lawrence that's the uh, analytics consultant for the Blue Jackets, or the Cam Lawrence that's the businessman from Vancouver?" It's the same guy. It's it's a he's the CFO of GNC, so he's based in Pittsburgh, originally from Vancouver, worked in um, finance in Vancouver um, in biomedical and tech industries but the past couple of years he's also but he, i mean he's just into hockey as well um he used to write for the fan blog canucks army like uh analytics type stuff somehow got an analytics uh like a in a consultant position with a with the panthers first so he was with the panthers um for a couple of years he was an amateur scouting consultant from 25 to tw 2015 to 2021 this year is his first year as an analytics consultant for the Blue Jackets. I, I Fenway said that they'd be willing to like look outside of hockey. Now this guy obviously does have minor um, roles in hockey front offices recently, but I I'd be wary of handing him just the reins of the whole team. 
given his that is his only background in hockey, writing for a fan blog and then a couple like consultant advisor positions. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to pretend to be overly in tune with like what's going on in the business world, but I've heard mm-hmm. like some very good things about what he did for GNC and like help them like escape bankruptcy or something. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but this is just <laughs> what I've heard. Like I said, I'm not exactly in tune with what's going on with, uh, GNC. But with that being said, this is the kind of guy I don't know that I'd love him as a in a GM role. But if they could pluck him maybe to bring him over to the front office, like I, I think that they would really benefit here too. And I obviously they're casting a wide net with with these candidates that they're speaking to, clearly from going to Shirelli to Eric Tolsky. But <laughs> Um, I, I think it would be great if they could get some some diverse, strong opinions in that front office. So uh, Lawrence is a guy I think that maybe they could offer him like a full time position in that front office. It's not as GM. And I don't know. It, it's so hard to like speculate on those kind of things, though, because it's like, OK, well, then who's going to be the GM and who's going to be the president of hockey ops? Would they get well to get along well together? It's just so hard. But that's kind of somebody I would be looking at, like, yeah, maybe bring him over and find a spot for him. Yeah. Uh, two more. We have two more candidates. Uh, Steve Greeley, definitely in the first round of interviews, potentially in the second. No one's totally clear on that. Um, he's been the star's director of scouting and director of player development for the last two seasons. And before that, he was the Sabres assistant GM from 2017 until 2020, until he was fired in that overhaul of the whole Sabres hockey ops um, department. Uh, his experience also includes two years as the Rangers assistant director of player personnel, two years as the associate head coach of the Boston university men's team and seven years in, in different scouting roles with the Kings amateur and pro. Um, when he was hired by the stars, general manager, Jim Neal, uh, he pointed to Greeley's strong scouting and analytics background. And he said he's shown the ability to research and digest numbers and information that help decision-making and that drafting, developing and signing players. Um, so he has a pretty diverse background and the analytics background that it seems like Fenway really wants. So he, he seemed like a good um, possibility. Yeah. I, I'm not overly familiar with Greeley, but uh, from everything that I have heard, sounds like it's right up the alley that they're looking for it. So. Yeah. Um, and then last one, Jason, Bo- another retread, Jason Bottle. Um, no one's super clear on whether or not he was for sure seriously in that first round of interviews. So he might not even, um, be a real candidate, but he was with the Penguins 20, 2007 to 2017, um, as director of hockey ops for two years, um, assistant GM for five seasons. And in those last three seasons, he was associate GM, um, he also managed Wilkes-Barre during his last eight years in Pittsburgh. He left the Penguins willingly to take the GM job in Buffalo, fired by the Sabres after three seasons. Sabres had a losing record under him, 88, 115, and 30. They never made the playoffs. Even though his last, you know, his last year was the expanded format in the 2019-20 season, the, the restart. Um, the last three years, he's been an assistant GM for the Kraken for the last three seasons, so helping to build them through the expansion draft and then the team that's now um, in the playoffs. I, I'm not, I don't know how I feel about, about Botterill. Um, Simon Buffalo wasn't great, but now like you look at, at the time, what was perceived as one of his biggest like misses as a, as a move in, in Buffalo was trading O'Reilly 
to the Blues. Um, it turned out to be a hit. Yeah, it did. It, it just played a long game. They got Vladimir Sabotka back, Patrick Berglund, and Tage Thompson in a first and second round pick. Um, Sabotka and Berglund never worked out for Buffalo. And Tage Thompson got off to a slow start his first year there, and then his second year he missed significant time due to injury. But these past couple of years, I mean, after Botterell's been gone from Buffalo, Tay Thompson has turned out to be, you know, one of like the, the top fours really in the NHL on close to 100 point season this year. So it ended up working out. But at the time, it was perceived as a big uh, miss. That Jeff Skinner contract was one I know people have been wary of, but then Jeff Skinner's turned around. Too. Yeah, I I, yeah. I, ha- I had him on my uh, awards ballot on the uh, on the All Star All NHL team as is one of the left wingers. Like he had a phenomenal season this year. Yeah, um, I, hindsight has definitely done some favors for Botterill's tenure with the Sabers, like the O'Reilly Thompson trade, as you mentioned. Um, but beyond that, he drafted Rasmus Dahlin, Matias Samuelson, Dylan Cousins. And those are all guys who are, are either stars or, or key contributors for the Sabres now. So um, still with that being said, I feel like, I don't I know. I with I, the Penguins too recently. Yeah, I feel like he was with the Penguins too recently. And I, I don't know how... I hesitate to even say he wouldn't be forward thinking, but I don't know. I'm not doing a very good job of articulating what I'm trying to say right now, but I, I yeah, there's better options. Yeah. My pick would either be Tolski or McKinnon. And if you bring in McKinnon, also bring in Megan Duggan. I don't know about president of hockey. Obviously again, I feel like that's, maybe that goes to someone like, like Bergevin. If you bring in someone who hasn't been a head GM before, like a Tolskier. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll place my vote for Tolski and an honorary mention for Shirelli because man, I would just <laughs> love how funny that would be. Yeah, that would be so funny. All right, we're gonna that's it from the candidates. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about uh, what the Penguins do with their first round pick if they do keep it. With Game Pass. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab grown diamond bands, all hand finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24 7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. All right, and we are back. Uh, The Penguins have the 14th overall pick in this summer's draft in Nashville. The highest pick they've had since they drafted Derek Pouliot in 2012. And it's supposed to be a pretty deep draft. I think you and I are both in agreement that the best thing to do with this pick is to trade it because you're not going to get a player with this p- 
pick who will help them probably while Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are still playing. This yeah. is not, yeah. It It's, there's no accelerating any rebuild by hanging on to the 14th overall pick. Just as we were talking about with the Oilers and Shirelli, they had how many high draft picks and still weren't even making the playoffs. Okay. Yeah. It's no guarantee. And when, when you have a situation where you have a top five player of all time, another generational talent, and then a third superstar who have all played together for as long as they have, have won as many championships as they have, and are still playing at this elite level this late into their careers. And then last offseason, you basically committed to trying and winning with them until they're toast. You can't turn back on that less or, or a year later. You just can't. It would be a disservice to them. And, you know, I'm not putting... Crosby, Malk, and Latang up there is, you know, the best trio in the NHL at this point. They're not, but they're still good enough to get the job done, especially with the cap hits that Malkin and Latang are playing at now, that if the team around them is decent enough, that they can at least make some noise. So that's why, and again, we, we've talked about their competitive window before too, and yeah, it could go another two, three seasons maybe, but do you really want to bank on that? You really should just be operating on a, we've got to win this thing right now with the season that's in front of us. Well, for the Penguins to do that, they're going to have to spend some assets and they don't have a ton of them. And that 14th overall pick is probably maybe aside from Owen Pickering, but I, I would say Pickering's probably got lower value than this pick right now. Oh, yeah. So uh, of what the organization has, this 14th overall pick is probably the best thing that they can offer in a trade right now. Yeah, draft picks are like um, like buying a car. Like as soon as you drive it off the lot, it loses value. So like, yeah, Pickering absolutely has lower value than than a first round pick. I, the, the problem is like a lot of fans look at the NHL draft like it's the NFL draft, and that you're going to yeah. get someone who's going to be on the team next year. You're not. Not in, maybe like the top three picks could be in the NHL next year. The problem is if you're drafting out of juniors. They can't even go down to the AHL until they're 20 years old. So it's either juniors or back to the NHL. And very, you're not, it, it would be very rare to get a junior player this low in the first round who can go right to the NHL. Same with um, college players. If you, if you get a college player here, most of them are going to go to college for one or two years. Um, I, mean, I mean, heck, Owen Power was the number one overall pick, and he went and, and played right. another season in Michigan and then joined the Sabres for like a handful of games at the end of the season. Yeah, a lot of um, European players, a European player would be maybe your best bet if you want to bring them over, but even some of them just aren't ready. Um, and if you're drafting out of Russia, a lot of them are under contract in Russia and can't get out of that. Uh, so that's... It's not like people are at, or tweeting and being like, are there any, are there any goalies in the, you know, the mid first round that could, you know, the Penguins could get. It's like, you're not going to get a Definitely not a goalie. Yeah. Like uh, the Penguins should not be drafting any goalies at all with Mershov and Blomquist in the system and Gauthier. We're going to talk about Gauthier next, uh, next segment too. But um, so yeah, they should trade the pick. But anyway, I did a story looking at six potential options that the Penguins could pick if they do keep that pick. None of these guys are going to be in the NHL next year. Don't get your hopes up. Um, and once you get there, like this far in the draft, it's kind of a crapshoot. You'll see guys fall that shouldn't fall and guys get drafted higher. I do one of these every year with the Penguins, like, first pick in the, in the draft. Last year, I, yeah, I picked maybe, like, six, eight options for the Penguins in the first round. I didn't have Pickering on my list. 
the last time they had a first round pick with with Poulain, I did have Poulain on my list. So it's just hard to it's this is not the NFL. That's a problem. Fans look at like the NFL. You can predict like deep into the draft. With the NHL, you can't even predict beyond like the for you, people. Shane Wright fell the four last year. Like, yeah. Okay. And again, and because it's the NHL, you're not drafting by like positional need. You're not like, oh, the Penguins could use a center. So you draft a center. You really just take the best assets. Yeah. Cause you, you have no idea what's going to happen to their center depth in the four or five years. It's going to be until that player gets to the NHL. Yeah. Even if you're looking at like, oh, the Penguins prospect pool could use like a right handed defenseman. By the time this prospect goes pro, they might have a bunch of right-handed defensemen that they get in uh, other avenues like college free agents and other draft picks. So you don't draft by need. You, you don't pay attention to any of that. Just quick going down like the list I have because we're, we're running long on this episode. <laughs> um, Axel Sanding, Pelika, Pelika, defenseman out of Sweden. Uh, he plays for Skleftia. Uh He is a right-handed defenseman, 5'11", 176. Uh, also, if we're talking about the differences between the NFL and the NHL and how difficult it is to rank, the NHL does not even rank European prospects and NHL and North American prospects in the same list. They have a list of North American skaters, North American goalies, European skaters, European goalies. Does that make any sense to you? If you can rank a kid in the KHL against a kid in the Swiss second league and then I feel like you can compare them to a kid major junior in Canada. The NHL disagrees. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, I think part of the problem with that and not to diminish the work that scouts do, but like when you have so many prospects to evaluate, a lot of the time you just fall back on like the box score stats mm-hmm. and like, then that's where the problem like, Oh, you don't want to compare again. You don't want to compare leagues that are, you know, guys playing against men versus the junior leagues and all that. At the end of the day, though, the scouting has got to be about the individual skills here mm-hmm. and the individual skills and the projectability of them. But anyway, we can get into the, the rest. Of yeah. The, um, Sandine Pelica, he was, he split the season between um, his team's Swedish hockey league team. So the top, the top league in Sweden and the U 20 junior team, um, see, this is always a benefit when you when you draft a kid out of Europe is that they do have the opportunity to play against like grown men. Um, whereas if you draft an eighteen year old, they're going to be out of juniors. They're going to be playing against teenagers for for a couple of years. Um, uh, the website Dabber Prospects describes him as a mobile, offensive minded blue liner who likes to activate into the offensive zone, plays with energy on both sides of the puck, and has the potential to become a top four defenseman. In the NHL, um, he, you know, and he has the speed and mobility to make him a good power play quarterback. That's what he was doing in Sweden. Um, ships in offensively himself with a with a one timer in the power play a lot. Um, if there's a knock on him, it's his need to improve on the defensive side of the puck. But that's not uncommon for defensemen his age. I feel like, especially coming from some European leagues. Yeah. So that's him. Um, his contract in Sweden runs through the 24-25 season, so he's not someone that we would even be able to bring over to Wilkes-Barre like next year. So that's a knock. But uh, again, you're not going to get anyone who's going to be that that ready. Um, Incredible on. name, though. Yeah, <laughs> Brady, the Pittsburgh radio people and people <laughs> who struggle with the names would not be. Um, they're people that Legere. <laughs> Lagari, Lagari, which is a relatively simple name. Um, 
So that's that is a knock on it. <laughs> Uh, moving on, a center from Moosejaw Warriors, Braden Yeager, um, 5'11", 160, so 166 pounds. Uh, all of these kids are going to need to put on weight. That's just how they are. You're, if you find like a kid who can play well and move well, and there's something like 190, 200 pounds, that's like a unicorn. They're 18 years old. So yeah, everyone yeah. needs to put on weight. Those guys get drafted in the top five picks. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jaeger, he's the number 11 North American skater. Um, the Peng, Again, you don't really draft by a positional need, but the Penguins could use a strong center uh, in the prospect pool because there really aren't, aren't many. So that would just be a plus. But again, you don't go after a center intentionally. Um, yeah, potential to develop into a solid to a center. Ability to play in the power play and penalty kill. Um, this is his second full season in the WHL. 28 goals, 50 assists, and 67 games. That was number two on scoring on Moose Jaw behind only 2022 second round pick, Jagger Furcus. You want to talk about names, Jagger Furcus. Um, you know, the, the 2022 NHL drafts had some phenomenal names. <laughs> um, Jaeger, he uh, won the CHL Rookie of the Year, which is the way this, because the CHL is the the league that has the OHL, QMJHL, WHL. So all those leagues have their own, their, their, um, their rookie of the year. And then the CHL picks one, picks one among those. Um, it's a pretty prestigious award. You look at the last four CHL rookie of the year winners before um, Jaeger, it was Shane Wright, Quinton Byfield, um, uh, Alexi Lafreniere, Nico Heischer. That, that's a, the one before that was Alex Nylander, so it doesn't. They don't always turn into superstars, but um, pretty good list. Uh, every every scouting website points to his shot as his greatest asset. Good mo- puck handler, um, puck mover, great mobility, sick handling. Um, he, I've got he, I, I've got him at the at the top of my uh, of the guys we're going through. Like he's he's got to be at the top for me. Yeah. Um, Let's see. We're going to rapid fire through these because <laughs> we have Derek Arkin coming on in a few minutes. Uh, Nate Danson, center Brandon Weekings, another good two-way center from the WHL. Um, let's see. I, uh, if anyone wants to find this article on the website, I have highlights um, and everything. Strong shot, goal scoring upside, uh, can, good at setting up his teammates, good playmaker. Um, one of his bigger strengths is his skating and his you know, pure speed and mobility. And at six foot two, 185 pounds, he has pretty good size and strength for a guy like this. Um, let me see. Uh, okay. Uh, David Reinbacher, defenseman out of the Swiss National League, the NL. That's the top Swiss league. Um, he he uh, defenseman, right-handed. Number five European skater. Um, He's Austrian, playing in the Swiss League, uh, playing top minutes over there. That's the thing. When you're playing in a low-level league like this, they you're in, um, you know, he's playing like top top pairing minutes, and he's doing well. Uh, Reinbacher, three goals and 19 assists to finish finish uh, in 46 game to finish number two on his team is Cloton. I think that's how you say it in scoring, um, and finish number two on the team overall with a plus seven rating. Um, and he played for Austria in the, in the world junior championship, um, did pretty well with them too. 
Uh, Elite Prospects says Ryan Bacher is a force in transition, active in all three zones, proficient at generating defensive stops. He's a powerful, agile skater. But where he stands out is his commitment and ability to read the play and then react as a quality defensive defenseman. Um, he's the kind of defenseman that you pair with an offensive defenseman um, to be that kind of steady, reliable presence. Um, now, if you want to get some over as soon as possible, he's not signed anywhere through next season. So, and because he's Europe, he's European, you're drafting him out of Europe. He's not, he can play in the AHL before he's 20. Um, and yeah, he's not committed to um, staying in the Swiss league for next year. So if, even if he doesn't go come to North America, the Penguins could kind of control where he goes. Maybe you get him, you get him loaned to like a Swedish hockey league team so he can move up. Um, so that, that would be intriguing about him. Um, let's see, Matthew Wood, University of Connecticut, right wing, number four North American skater. He was the youngest player in college hockey this season. Um, he was playing in the BCHL um, in 21-22. He was supposed to go, um, he was supposed to have wait another year and, you know, then go to college. But he was just so good in the BCHL that UConn brought him in early. And then he led UConn in scoring with 11 goals, 23 assists in 35 games. The player comparisons you see, everyone compares him to Tage Thompson, style wise, but then also because they both went to UConn. Um, yeah, real convenient. Yeah, so, um, uh, their skating style is what like Central Scouting compares him to Tage Thompson like the most. Um, quote from David Gregory, NHL Central Scouting senior manager: uh, Both of them are not going to look like the Energizer Bunny, ha having that quick twitch, but they've got the longer stride. Matthew thinks the game well. He's got good edges. I think the power and strength will come. Matthew Wood, his favorite player growing up, Evgeny Malkin, he wears number 71 for Gino. Um, Wood did an interview with NHL.com. He said, I grew up loving his game. I'm, I'm Malkin. Um, he's big and skilled, and he competes really hard, so that's definitely one guy that's my favorite player. A guy like Miko Rotten is also fun to watch. He's super smart, skilled, big, can score from anywhere. Um, I mean, Matthew Wood is one of those ones that has the size at his age already, six foot four, hundred ninety three. If he is around, um, and so people, why would he be there? Um, his overall speed is something that needs work, and then his two way game. So if Wood's around, I would, I would take, I would take him. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily expect him to be there. If he is, like, it, it's kind of like a toss up for me mm -hmm. between him and Jaeger. Um, I, I would stay away from a, taking a defenseman here, take a forward. Like it, we're, we're talking yeah. about like a defenseman who you already know you're going to have to pair him with an offensive guy. You can trade for those guys. You can, you can sign them. Don't draft one. Okay. Don't trade the pick. Trade the pick. Um, one more Gabriel Perot, right wing from the U S national team development program, five eleven, 165. So again, he's put on weight. Um, he's the number 10 North American skater. He projects as a future top six swinger. This season, he broke the single-season scoring record for the U.S. National Team Development Program. 53 goals, 79 assists, 63 games. Only one of four players to ever break the 100-point mark in a single season for the program. Joining Austin Matthews, Cole Caulfield, Jack Hughes. Um, Dabber Prospect says, heading to the year, he was seen as more of a playmaker down the road, but he's quickly shown that he's also a talented finisher. Um, his biggest weakness right now is he needs to put put on uh, weight, obviously. And then his speed and defensive game uh, also needs work. Um, his father, Yannick, played 14 seasons in the NHL with the Leafs, Kings, Canadians, Predators, Coyotes, Blackhawks. 
Um, so that's him. We got to wrap this segment up. I, uh, we're in agreement. Trade the pick. If not, trade the pick. Matthew, what if he's there? If not, Jaeger. Not just because he kind of sounds like Jaeger, but <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this segment. We're going to wrap it up. Stay with us. We got Derek Army coming on. Um, should be a fun interview. So stick with us. And welcome back. As promised, we do have a guest this week. We are joined by Derek Army, head coach of the Wheeling Nailers. Derek, thanks for joining us. And I, I was telling you the other day, you're now our most repeated guest on our <laughs> podcast on the on the network. This is your third appearance, surpassing JD Four. So just how much of an honor is that? <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a big honor. Um, JD obviously is a uh, unbelievable guy, so to, to be ahead of him, I guess is uh, is always nice. If there was a shirt, you know, hey, that's that's top notch. But maybe that's a, a four time appearance. Yeah. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this week is you did uh, just sign a contract extension to stay head coach of the Nailers for the for the next three seasons. Just, I mean, congrats on that, and just feeling like having that that security and that that vote of confidence um, in in your your job. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously great to have the, you know, the security of three years, one being just that I have family and whatnot, but also just the fact that, um, you know, the kind of the plan that I have down here is that it's just shared vision. And it's not just a vision within, you know, wheeling, but it's a shared vision within Pittsburgh. And I think that's the thing that matters most is that it's a cooperative thing between wheeling and, and Pittsburgh to, you know, to extend me. And it's one of that I'm very blessed and fortunate to have gotten this opportunity. And now, um, trying to make the most of it and, um, you know, kind of keep producing. I mean, my goal is to have a player play for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And that's what I know. I'm, you know, someone who came through here is, is that's when I know I've done, you know, my job right. And, um, but no, I, I couldn't be more excited to just be back in wheeling. I love it here. My family loves it here. Um, so it, it's one of those things where pride is still to win a Kelly cup and, you know, that'll be the mission. Yeah. What Danny, you want to go? Yeah, yeah I, I was just gonna say, Derek, you've you've gotten some like really rave reviews for the the job that you've done there in in a relatively short amount of time. Just what do you attribute that to? I think just my time in in the organization prior to you know, for me, I, I always look at and I try to tell people is you know the teams I was on my first year was uh, really was fourteen fifteen, and in my time, the guys that I saw come through were Casey DeSmith, Tom Kunakel. Carter Rowney, Josh Archibald, and then separate NHLers and JSD, Morgan Ellis, uh, Mike Condon. So that span, even to this day in the ECHL for any team is no one, no one did that. And um, I look at the, what we had is I think my the 15, 16 year, the Penguins obviously won the Stanley Cup. We lost in the Easter, we lost in the, uh, the championship in game six. And then, uh, Wilkes-Barre, I think, finished first in the American League, but maybe got bounced in round two. But for me, the whole principle was was winning was the focus. And I thought when guys were with us, they won. And that's where Tom Kunak, when he came down, I think they told him it was a one-week stint. And he ended up you know, sticking for two or three months, scored a big overtime goal in the playoffs, had to PK, had to do all these things that adapted him to then go to Wilkes uh, to take on the role and then you know continue on. So I think the winning aspect in – three organizations is important. And for me, getting back to that as this is the principal point in in development. And, you know, I, I've seen the success in the numbers for guys we've had in the analytics that I have is 
guys are developing because they have to play in these situations. And I think it's very important. And I've kind of tried to instill that culture. It's, you know, that's probably the focal point is winning, but also for me, I took pride in wheeling as a, you know, it's a hardworking blue collar town. And um, I took a lot of pride in it as a player and in the community. And, um, you know, I've tried to instill that in the players now here is, you know, be a part of it, be a part of the fans, be appreciate what this town is, go out and have lunch, just, just be seen because uh, the people here love the Nailers and um, they want a community team that loves being in Wheeling. And I think they lost that for a few years, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, for, for you, just, just beyond that, what is it about Wheeling? Because the Nailers released said, you know, this is going to be your, your ninth season in Wheeling in total between coaching and playing more than time than anyone has spent in Wheeling. And I mean, you look at, you know, other ECHL, ECHL cities, it's not like an Orlando or Cincinnati or Boise or a big town like that, but just, just what is it about Wheeling that, you know, you have that connection with? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I left, when I left school at, at Providence College, it was like, I didn't think I'd ever find, like, I thought, I was like, this is it. This is my end all be all. Um, like, I don't know how it'll get better. And then I came to Wheeling and the fans kind of took me in and I just appreciated the team we had. And I think was the was everyone just was in it together. And it was one of those teams that through all my years there where it was, you know, you make, you make of it with the players you have, you make of it with the community you have. And I think the community is so supportive. And then within the team, it was, everyone loved, you know, being a part of it. Everyone loved that little grind that, okay, I don't have to be the darling in Fort Myers, Florida, where I'm laying on the beach. I can be in the, you know, I can be in a cloudy day, leave on a, a rainy, happy, you know, day and go have a nice bite to eat with my friends. I can have fun. I can make fun with that. I can go to top golf. There's things you can do, but it's appreciating that hard work and that, uh, you know, that ability that like, Hey, not everyone's willing to do this, but Hey, I, I am. And I think that was something I appreciated. And then, you know, I've grown to love the city. There's little in, you know, nooks and crannies to the restaurants and, and whatnot. And, good places to go in the parks and my son loves the parks and we love skating and all, you know, all these things now that I really, really appreciate with having a family, but those are kind of what drew me in as a, as a player. Yeah. Uh, Derek, go back to your work on the bench. And I, I don't mean to compare apples to oranges here by any means, but um, I, so I, for several years after I graduated from high school it was two, three years afterward, I went back and started coaching my high school team. And one of the things that I really struggled with was separating myself as the actual head coach and somebody that wasn't their friend, right? Because we're so close in age. Some of the guys that were on the team knew me from me having played previously. I had a couple of buddies whose younger kids or um, younger brothers were playing on the team. So with you being a relatively young head coach and, and having been so familiar with the organization how do you kind of separate that fine line as you know i i'm the guy in charge here but also kind of building and still cultivating those relationships yeah i think you know for me i've been blessed obviously having my dad coach since i was you know coach over a thousand nhl games and so being around it with him i did have a little bit of an awareness of you know just life lessons and lessons along the coaching path that i was able to kind of pick up and as i got into coaching i had coaches who were maybe too close on that line of to players and where it was a little uncomfortable, even as a player. And as I got to coaching, I actually had to coach two former players my first year as an assistant in Worcester. And, you know, I, I did have many conversations where I was like, hey, listen, yes, I'm your, you know, we were really close before, but I have your, this is my job now. And I did learn, uh, you know, we were fired in Worcester, myself and the head coach, Jamie Russell, in my second season. And I kind of learned at that point, you know, not that 
because we kind of, I don't want to say chose friends or, you know, chose maybe some favorable connections on the team, like to keep around or make roster moves. And it was kind of a point like, Hey, I have a son on the way and now obviously I have a daughter, but is I can't make decisions that I don't think, am, you know, help my family as well. That's the number one thing I have to look out for is making sure I, I take care of, you know, my wife and my kids. And um, so that kind of was a big thing in seeing that as a assistant Worcester, like, Hey, we, there's some decisions maybe we could have made different. And now for me, I do think the hugest part in hockey and any team sport now is with the new age of players is making sure you have a relationship. You know, I want to know who their, their significant other is. I want to know, you know, where they spend their summers, where they vacation. I want to know these things because I want to know them as individuals. I want them to know myself. I have my son in the locker room all the time. I have my daughter around and I have my family around. So that relationship is there. And I truly do care about every single player on this team. Now I do have to separate, you know, there's certain lines I, I, you know, obviously I don't cross. I don't, uh, you know, I know when I'm supposed to joke maybe a little bit too far and that's, you know, I I don't cross it. I know when my line is with these players and the hard part is, you know, having to trade them or release them or, or, or things like that. But I, the thing I built up from the start with them is the honesty. I, I pride myself on, I'm going to be honest with you, um, you know, from the second I talk to you until whenever that time comes that it's that it's over is I'm going to tell you straight up. I'm not going to beat around the bush, you know, and I think they appreciate that honesty, that trust that they know I have their back and the best interest. And I am going to be upfront with them. And so um, some of these decisions are hard, but I think they know, hey, listen, he, it's not one of those that it's a personal thing. It's this is business sometimes. Yeah, you were um, as head coach of the team that brought, you know, wheeling back to the playoffs for the first time since since you were there as a player. This year, you, you fell short. Just can you reflect on this season, maybe why, what didn't have yeah. to make the playoffs this year and just what needs to change going into to next year? Yeah, for sure. I think the hard part at times with being in wheeling is um, you don't typically, you know, get the veterans who live in the area. And for us, I pride myself on moving players on. And for us in the last two years, we've had 33 call-ups. We've had countless guys leaving. So unfortunately for us, after that year, we, you know, we realistically, I think we could have won the Kelly Cup had we, you know, Sam Hood went up to Wilkes-Barre for us before round two, and then we didn't get two players back who were up. And so I do think we could have won the Kelly Cup, but that's besides the point. So as we got into last year, I think we only returned eight of our top 10 scorers and we didn't return our starting goalie. And so right then you're starting behind the eight ball. I'm not saying though, you know, the pride is that we had, I think three players sign AHL contracts that didn't have them the year before we had a guy sign uh, a big deal in Europe and or a couple of deals in Europe. And so there was some good things that happened and we moved players on like I wanted to do, but then we had a large gap to fill. And I don't think, um, you know, because the run we were on, we weren't able to bring in college kids or, you know, some of the younger players to test out. And so we didn't really have that next wave of players waiting in the wind to come up. And I think that was an area where um, going to summer, that was a focal point was, can we address? And I think maybe I overshot on a couple of players that just, you know, I missed what the mark would be for them. And then on top of it, you know, we had some players who, we were banking on and, and had short stints, good or bad. Um, you know, we had Cedric Perry play nine games and then finished, you know, the entire year with Colorado Eagles. Jostling was up in Wilkesburg for extended time. We had Hosinger who was good. So we had a number of players. I hate making excuses. I do believe that no matter who's in my lineup, we will win. And that's the focal point. 
but it was one that it was a completely new team. And, and I had a hard time looking at it that way. And so um, as we got through the season um, towards the end, I really think we could have made a playoff push, um, but I don't think it would have set us up for, like, I don't think realistically, I don't think it was a team that could have won the Kelly cup. And I don't think it was a team that helped us next year. And so for me, it was okay. Well, we need to, you know, shake it up a little bit. We got to find what brings us a championship. We have to find the next crop of players that can come in and help Wilkes. And so, that became the focal point at the end, uh, the last 11 days, because we didn't really bring in college players the year before. So, you know, the, the job was, can we find some players to come in for next season? I think that was, you know, successful in that sense and successful in our call-ups we got up, but, you know, unsuccessful in, in the outcome. And just looking at, uh, like more on the individual level yeah. here at some of the players, uh, I believe Josh Maniscalco is a, is a free agent at this point in time, but just where does his kind of game stand right now? It seemed like he was maybe a guy last year that could spend some time up at Wilkes-Barre, maybe on a little bit more of a consistent basis. Um, so just where does his game stand right now? What are some of the strengths that he has to his game and what does he maybe need to work on a little bit to get up to the AHL on a full-time basis? Yeah. Uh, Manny was a guy who came in and, and was raw. I think, you know, the thing that hurt Manny was he had six games his, during the COVID year. So he lost a full year of development. And I thought the year uh, last year, two years ago, I guess, um, he really, we you know, we poured the role on him and he got confidence. Um, his thing is he always wants to play. He wants to be offensive. And unfortunately, as you get to the next level, there are going to be guys who can fill that role, um, who are more destined for that role. You know, just in general, there's guys in the American League who are the offensive guys, but they can't be the offensive guys in the NHL. So Manny is a guy who has that offensive capability, but didn't quite have the polish defensively, the physicality. And I thought over the two-year stretch, you saw, for me, I, I analytically, I see his numbers drastically increases. PK was great. Um, his physicality, his, his hits, actually, he ended up being second in our decor um, on hits the year before. And then this year you saw his numbers, chances for, and it gets completely dropped, like, you know, even out in terms of they were much more chances for. So I had a lot of confidence in his game. Um, and then when he went to Wilkes, I think you see that in his numbers that he played 24 games. He's a plus player um, where there was a lot of, you know, down the stretch, there were some minus players. He was a plus player. And so you see he made those adjustments. Um, I thought by the end, he was really playing an important role for Wilkes. And I think that's a, a good sign. The beauty of it for Manny, I think he's 24. And a lot of the college players that come out, um, you know, they're 24, but do they have 200 plus pro games and, and playoff experience? No. So he, I think he's a really valuable piece and um, continuing to push his physicality side of things is, is an area that, you know, I think he works on. And then uh, another NHL contracted player you had down there, Jordan Frask, uh, obviously behind the eight ball a bit to start just injury wise, getting hurt yeah. up here. Um, I think with him, I was a little surprised just that he wasn't putting up maybe the points that we saw in, obviously he was an overager and junior yeah. power play with Shane, Wright. Um, just what did you see from him in wheeling when maybe the points weren't coming like they were in juniors? Yeah, no, I, I think Frasky was, unfortunately, like, like you said, he, he had to deal with injuries. He had, you know, he came off a shoulder injury in, in the actual development camp and then he had a high ankle sprain in main camp. And all of a sudden the high ankle sprain is very difficult to come back from. And as a young, very young player who um, is coming to a new place, it's, it's not easy. And I thought he was a guy who his game significantly of all the guys for us this season that showed development, his halfway point, his numbers, 
to the second half drastically changed. And I think that was showed, um, you know, him getting used to the pace, him getting used to all these things um, within the game. His first half, he maybe was a little step behind and that has to do with the conditioning and the ankle and all that. But as it got going, you could, you could tell he's playing with more pace. You could tell his face-offs, which were struggled early. And that's happens when you're now playing against men instead of the boys of the, you know, OHL, his face-offs improve as well drastically. And it was one that I think his real development was, was shown at the end. He was playing 19, 20 minutes. He was playing first line. He was having a match against their top players. And I thought he did a really good job. Now uh, I'm trying to pull up his, his conversion rate for you, his chances for and against, he had a, a lot of great numbers. His conversion rate is where, you know, is where he lacked. And I think that's just because, um, you know, just, you know, sometimes just unlucky, um, like for him, his, in his um, conversion rate during the game, during the season on any chances for and against, he was at 7.41 chances converted. That was our, our each individual average was 12.5. So it just shows you, you know, his just, just wasn't going in. And I think sometimes that happens and it really happened early his first 20 games. I think he only had three points. He started to convert more as he got more confidence. I think it's, it's just, it's take, it takes time sometimes. And I think you, we saw it really start to convert form at the end um, and really start to go in and show signs that, Hey, you know, he's going to be a player. Just he, it takes some time. And in his brief time in, in Wilkes-Barre, I, I was impressed by maybe like his attitude and his fearlessness. I mean, his, his debut in, in Wilkes-Barre, I, I don't know if, how much of it you saw, but yeah. he was, yeah, trying to like go onto the bench after a shift and Kale Kessie is blocking his way. Kale Kessie, one of the AHL's top heavyweights, and Frasca just tackles him into the bench. Uh, and I talked to him after, and he's like, yeah, I wasn't going to let myself be pushed around. And for, he, as a rookie, that's he's, He, he, that's... I would agree 100% with that. So we watched that. We had our eyes on that, you know, incident. And then on top of it, for us, we play, you know, I don't know if you guys know a whole lot of it. Fort Wayne for us is a, is, you know, they're loaded with heavyweights. They're tough up and down lineup and they want to come, you want to go play them and they're going to try and bully you and whatnot. For me, we had some guys who shied away, um, which is natural. Frasca stopped at the net every single time, took an extra cross check. And that's the thing that, uh, are things you try to teach these players and he naturally had that confidence. And I think that's a really good sign. Other skills will come, but being that fearless, um, not being afraid to, to play against a hard team like that, where a lot of guys are scared was very impressive. And, and just going back to his chances and his conversion rate right there, how tough is it as a head coach to obviously sports is a, a results driven business, right? But how tough is it to really balance when you, when you see the process there for a player, but it's just not necessarily clicking, how tough is it to kind of toe that line? And at what point is enough enough? It's, you know, that is very difficult at times because, you know, I think the, Hard part is when you're, you know, really in a down to a competition and you got to find a way to, you know, win. And it's like, I need these pucks to go in. We need these pucks to go in. And the player, you have to, you know, for me, I always try to remember, I was a player too, where, you know, it didn't go in. And these guys are trying. Now, little things, I always go back to, uh, you know, something I learned along the lines with Paul Korea years ago. This isn't, you know, he told me it's from through my dad is that, you know, in drills, he scored every single, every single rep, the puck went in the net. And it was just for him to see, 
I score every time. And so as I became a player, I tried to do that. And, you know, I am not Paul Career, but um, that's what I try to tell these guys is, listen, believe it's going to go in the net. Go to bed at night thinking 10 minutes, watch yourself score. See your watch your highlight reel um, in practice. See yourself score and work on these little things. And typically what I try to do is run them back through on a scoring chance, run them back through it in a practice just so they now see themselves scoring on that one-time pass or whatever it may be. But it is one that, you know, for me, can pay off and can't pay off. There's guys who, uh, we had a guy named Cedric De Rousseau who led us in points this year. He had one goal and two assists through 12 games. And he was supposed to be playing really top minutes. And his chances for and against, and his numbers for my side showed that it was a vet, it had to go in at some, like it just couldn't not. And I stuck with him and eventually it obviously cracked in up being a 30 goal score for us. But then conversely, I won't list the player's name, but we had a couple of players who I continued to go back to, you know, hoping it would go. Now their numbers dictated otherwise, like they weren't generating the same amount. They had minimal generated opportunities. So for me, I was like, okay, it's not, that's when I know it's not necessarily going to go in. I can live with a player who's getting a million chances for uh, and not hurting the team, you know, generating more on our offensive side of things and just not converting. Whereas, you know, it can't be an even number or can't be dictated into the the negatives. And that's where these players, that's when it was time to move on was, hey, you're minus 10, you know, it's continuing to go against us. It's time, unfortunately. And um, conversely, I'm sure it's it's probably tempting when you're seeing like a guy that's scoring, even though the, the maybe the chance generation numbers aren't there. It's probably tempting to be like, oh, well, maybe like this could keep going a little bit longer, right? Hundred percent. It, it fool. I mean, it fools you, and you try to. I think try to ride the hot hand as much as possible in a case like that. You know, try and say, you know, maybe it's just, just this is that one of those miracle runs. Let him go. Is that Tim Tebow, Jeremy Lin type run? Let him go. Whereas now, you know, then eventually when they start to come back to the pack, um, you know, then you you just you got to step in and coach them again and just say, hey, how can we get just get more opportunities? Um, typically, though. I try to stay if a player's red hot, unless it's something glaring. I try to, you know, say, hey, you know, here's your space right now. You're feeling good. That's a good thing. Uh, Taylor, are we, are we getting back into some individual players here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another guy I wanted to ask about was Brooklyn Kalmakov. He was up at Penguins Development Camp last season. Um, just where is his game at right now? And what are, you know, some of your outlooks on him heading into this season? Yeah, he, he's a guy who can score. He, he's a shot first player. Um, I think the thing with a lot of you know players in today's game is you can't teach scoring. Like you just you just can't teach goal scoring. And he's a guy who has it. Um, he wants to shoot the puck. Um, and I think it's just some natural evolution in his game in terms of some of the things that he needs to work on defensively. You know, for us, I think the biggest attribute to to Cali is looking at his numbers half season, same as Frasca showed significant development. And for me, that's where I, I'm very happy with what his, you know, his year is his first half. I think he, you know, he finished minus 15 in 33 games, his second half, uh, he was plus two and his numbers, his chances for against his in-depth numbers, going to the net, you know, blocks, these things all move, improve. So it's like, okay, he showed that the improvement is there. Um, there's still areas of growth, obviously, to his game to get to the next level because it is 
you know, you're going to start as a fourth line player in the American Hockey League, and then you'll eventually, or third liner, then you'll get your opportunity. Um, that's what I, you know, happened with Rowney and Kunakel and um, some of the players I've played with, you know, around the league. And um, so for him, though, to show those signs of growth is, is very important. He's 22 years old, maybe. So, um, yeah, I mean, he'd be a sophomore, junior in college now. So a lot, lot more growth to be had there. I was very excited to work with him. Um, and I think there's, you know, a bright future for him. Uh, defenseman Chris Ortiz, second year pro. He saw a little bit more AHL time this year. Just what kind of steps did you see uh, him take this year? Yeah, he's he's a slick puck moving defenseman and um, very smart, elite with his stick. Um, not afraid. Another guy who you know he's not a big defenseman, and you would think you know maybe he's a little timidness to him. Not at all. He he. When we play some of the teams, the hard teams, Fort Wayne, Cincinnati, they just try and take liberties at him, and he finds a way to just continue doing his thing and being effective. And um, he's a guy for us who, you know, can run a power play um, is smart in terms of his penalty killing some of his gaps where he'll continue to have to improve is, is his defensive game and continuing to get stronger because there are bigger players at the American hockey league. Um, and you just have to be able to adapt to that and start as a simple player. You know, Wilkes is probably not going to look to him to be the, the first, the quarterback on the PP in the first pair. So how can you keep it simple and just play a simple five, six pairing game to move yourself up? And that's kind of some of the things we worked on. And once again, with him, his numbers over the two year span continue to show growth in those areas. His, his numbers defensively improved. I thought his gaps and uh, stick got continually better. He trusted his feet a lot more, which was great to see. Yeah. Then the last guy I wanted to ask you about uh, was Justin Adamo. He's currently at the World Championship right now, potting some goals. Um, what do you, I guess, where do you see him going as a player? Because it seems like there's some legitimate upside there. I honestly see him as an NHL prospect. And I think you can't, te- he's six foot six, 255 pounds. Like he looks like he should be a tight end. And he is a player who, in, college a lot of his penalty minutes came from being overly physical um his feet obviously continue need to be improved but his shot is i haven't seen a shot like that it's heavy and goal like goalies see this shot from a distance and he just beats him clean he can't be moved around the net um i do see that he's a prospect if he continues to develop for us this year his steps were he was originally a winger he started taking face-offs and the thing i love most i watch france hungry uh two days ago or yesterday, and he took every important face-off for Team France. And I thought that was a, a true attribute to him learning the craft through the season, forcing himself to learn it. Um, and then his game defensively was really good for us. He was ranked our top forward on the season. And not that's just within the analytics side of things. He was very impressive. Um, I thought his speed, although he, you know, he looks big and can lumber a little, he, he gets there. He can, he can get going a bit. And I think that's something for him that uh, he can take pride in is going to Wilkes and he scored six goals in 12 games or something. And it's like, okay, there's something there. And I think it was good to see him get re-signed because I do honestly believe that, um, you know, he can kill penalties. He could play the depth front of the power play. He's physical. He's learning that side of things a little bit more, the physicality, Six foot six, you're probably going to have to, you know, fight. It's just the reality of it. So he's learning that craft. Um, but I was very impressed with him, and he's probably one of the best guys you will 
um, you'll meet as an individual. Um, so I, I'm excited to see where his growth goes. Yeah. I almost wonder if he could kind of develop into a guy kind of like Brian Boyle did and carve out a similar role, like you were mentioning, being a, a you know, a, a bottom six guy who's relied on on the penalty kill a little bit. But Brian Boyle was a dude who could score goals, too. Yes, 100 yes. percent. I I don't see why not. He's you know, he's he's kind of he's self-made. Um, you know, he had a lot of coaches help him along the way. And then, you know, this year he did a lot of growth, it, his growth in numbers. To me, if he continues growing like this, um, it's very, very promising. I think JD, um, you know, sinking his teeth into him with, you know, ports and whatnot will be great for him. Um, but yeah, I, you can't make that size up in a, in a league where you look at teams. What is the biggest, you know, in these NHL playoffs down the middle, size down the middle, strength down the middle, um, you know, some size on the back lines are important. And he's a guy who can provide that. And I, I think that's, you know, very promising thing, you know, within the organization. Last guy I wanted to ask about, uh, Taylor Gauthier, first year pro. You had him at the beginning of the year, came up to Wilkes-Barre, had a great uh, rest of the year. I'd be surprised if you see him again, but did, did you just see him having this kind of year, you know, when you had him down there, just raw first year pro? Yeah, I think, you know, great person, uh, like one of those guys who just uh, a character, like happy, um, you know, great to talk to. Um, so I think his personality was was great in that sense. And then on top of it, he's a competitor. And I love a guy who wants in practice to, you know, takes a shot like it's for the Stanley Cup because that's the, you know, that's where, you know, this guy's got that extra push for himself and spent a lot of time with Charles Grant with us. And imagine Kane Tissy up in Wilkes. But um, his, for example, for me, his first game in Wheeling, first pro game, you know, he's going head to head with Kosa, who was the first rounder, the other WHL uh, Red Wings pick, um, and they're going head to head. And so it's obviously in his head, he's built it up. And unfortunately, he gives up his first three goals. He gives up one from behind the net. He turns one over. It's in the back of the net. And I think he'd want all three back. There's maybe three goals on four shots and you blink. And it's like, oh, tough start to his pro career. What, you know, what do we, do I get him out of the net? And I'm like, let's let him, let's see what we, what he, what he's got. And he battled, he didn't give up a goal for the rest of the, the game. He battled, you know, he came in after he's like, you know, thanks for not pulling me. I, 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 I knew I had better. And he gave us a chance to win. And, you know, aside from, he had a little stretch where he had some things going on that um, he was really good for us. He was elite. He played some high end games. I could see his future um, from talking with the goalie, you know, development coaches, um, that he was a guy that they were thinking, Hey, he's going to be something. And uh, I was very happy to see him have success in Wilkes because he is an unbelievable person. Yeah. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask about, uh, something you've been doing, you've been bringing your son to press conferences and I, I know people like share the videos whenever you do it. It's the coolest thing. When did you start doing that? Why did you start doing that? Um, so my little guy's always like, he's always outside the locker room, love and life. Um, win or lose. Um, and so he's waiting and now he's, he's just become like, now he's asked, he's asking to do the interviews. Typically I told him, I'm like, listen, only when we win buddy. And then this year, um, he would get too persistent. So I started just letting him come on, but it was one, I, I think with, within the community, um, of wheeling, I want to, I want to be around. I want people to, you know, get to know myself and my family and they take care of my wife and my kids up in the, a lot of, you know, a lot of people come help her up top. And, um, you know, so, 
you know, I, I'll, I'll say this for me, my goal in life, you know, obviously always just, you know, was as a boy to win a Stanley cup. I always wanted to have children and be a dad. That's my, that's the thing I love more than anything in the world. And so having my son and my daughter um, is very important to me. And so now uh, I would have liked to have gotten my daughter in a couple interviews this year. I think next year I'll start to get phase her in as well. Um, but as one, I just want them to go through everything with me. I, I see the life I got to live as a child and being around my dad and getting to see all these players. I want my you know children to love what their dad does. I want my kids to love the nailers and, and love being around hockey. And fortunately he, he really does. And he actually learned to skate. Uh, he no help the other day, which was a, you know, was awesome. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm truly blessed. So I just want to share, I, I want to share all these moments with my family and that's, you know, the most important thing. And so if I can share these little interviews with my, my little guy, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Has uh, has he committed to Providence College yet? Yeah, it's. I told. Uh, I think I, I talked talk to uh, you know my my parents right after we were having the son. I'm like a lot of pressure on this little guy right now, but um, we'll we'll have to see where he goes. Who knows? It might be my daughter who's the Providence College hockey player. Um, but no, it will. You know, somebody's got to carry the carry the flag. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, any, any fun brand and Tanev memories? I feel like we ask you whenever you're on for people that don't know you, you played with, with Tanev line mates at Providence college. Yes. Uh, no, Tanny was, <laughs> Tanny was something else. Um, you know, it was great to see him have the success he had in Seattle. The, the blow and the kiss at the fan <laughs> did not surprise me even in the slightest. Um, but as one that, you know, for me was, he was a guy who worked hard and I, I love the fact that he was he always wanted to battle, always wanted to compete in practice and, and whatnot. So he was a guy who, no matter what, if it was video games or uh, <laughs> a, a, just a Red Sox game on TV, he always was, it was game seven to him. And um, he hated Boston sports. I can, I can say that he would always go at it with everyone about the Red Sox or the Bruins. Um, so yeah, for, to see his success has been great and um, very exciting for sure. And same with give my, my boy, Noel Achari a shout out as well. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll have to come. I'll have you come back on again. Yeah. Uh, have you keep your lead over, over JD in the, <laughs> in the appearance rankings. But uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Congrats on the extension. That's it for this episode of podcast on Fifth Ave. Thanks everyone for listening. We drop new episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts uh, or on the DK Pittsburgh Sports YouTube channel if you want to watch this. But uh, thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next week.